Live. I'm Lucas. It's Corona Kirby. And this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and whatever else is going through my mind recently. I guess to start this episode, we want to call it that off. I'd like to did a thread Twitter. Uh the impetus for the thread was me pointing out I encountered a paper where the appendix was at least half of the paper. So the paper was like maybe 40 pages long, and of that, 20 were the appendix. And that's not an uncommon occurrence, actually. I've found that many cryptography papers do this. And first of all, I don't really like it. One, first, before, before I get into why I think it's bad, I'd like to acknowledge that probably good reasons for doing it. So one sort of noble reason to do it is that if you have a lot of background in your paper, then you may want to put that in the appendix because it's not necessarily mandatory reading. For example, if you're recapping definitions uh, for certain security definitions that might be useful to have in the appendix, because many readers may already be familiar with it, but if they're not, then they can always read the appendix and get up to date that way. So for example, if you're defining a new exchange mechanism based on lattices, you might add the security definitions for you know NCCA for chems. Add those to the or you might add some background on Z proofs or Sigma protocols or maybe even a little curves. And this can be very useful for people of getting into a subfield because they may not have the necessary background or just aware of different tricks that exist in the literature, and you can put all of those in the appendix. And in general, the reason why you have this appendix is that it sort of doesn't penalize you if you have age limits for submitting to conferences where we will often say, you know, oh, you can only have 30 pages or 20 pages. And so if you have this extra background material, you know, you may want to cut it for conference submission, but you can actually include it in the appendix. It's sort of a win-win situation. Where things get bad, I think, is when people start putting stuff that's really not optional in the appendix. One thing I really dislike is when people put proofs in the appendix. So what I mean by this is like you, you, you sort of read the paper and it's like, okay, well, you know, we have the scheme, okay. And then we say, oh, the scheme satisfies certain security properties. Uh, so they have a lemma where it says, you know, XYZ scheme satisfies NCCA security with these assumptions. Uh, and then you have proof, dot, dot. But, in the appendix, <laughs> it's sort of not there. And then you have to jump to the appendix to read the proof. Now, I, I sort of get this in, in the sense that proofs are often you know, somewhat cumbersome. This is especially the case with, let's say, simulation-based proofs, or you, you see proofs. Just get kind of simulation. And so if those, like, you often have these sort of long you know, arguments where like you're doing a lot of sort of artificial stuff, you're setting up a simulator which tries to emulate, you know, the version of the protocol against 
adversary in a box. And all of this is sort of not very natural, and it's not very intuitive. Like if you take a scheme, you know, your classic protocol where it's like, oh, I've committed to everything, and I have ZK proofs everywhere. So if you, if you inspect it, it's sort of obvious that it's secure, but the proof is very different from the heuristic reason why you think it's secure. So like there's a big gap between the intuition you might have about why something is secure and the proof that ends up being in the paper. And this is why people don't want to put it in the main paper because it sort of, it, it messes up the flow. So instead they, they shove it all into the appendix. And I think that's sort of a reasonable instinct because it can really ruin the flow. And ultimately this is sort of a dirty little secret, but we, we don't really read proofs that often. I feel like a lot of people end up skipping the proofs, even, you know, reviewers. Uh, one of those reasons being that usually if something's fishy, you can sort of tell without even reading the proof. You can also sort of reason about schemes a lot without reading the proof. Really, you should read the proof, but another reason we don't is because the proofs aren't often easy to read. They're very technical, and also they're technical in, a, in, in this weird way where, like, they're also hand-wavy, too. <laughs> it's sort of hard to explain without getting to the nuances of, of simulation-based proofs, which are really the, the culprits here, but basically they, they sort of kind of abstract away, like, technical details and the, the proof framework we end up using. And so often, like, they're, they're quite hard to follow, and as I said before, they don't really match the intuition of... And my opinion on this is sort of that, you know, if we had better techniques for proofs, proofs that, that more closely matched our intuition, were more composable, that had less superfluous technical details, then we'd have less of an urge to hide them away in the appendix. That, that'd be my, my sort of solution towards that, is, well, we need to get better at writing proofs. Uh, one thing I did in a recent paper of mine is that I put for the proof itself, I put sort of a proof idea section. I had a few programs sort of explaining how the proof worked at a high level. And so the idea was that, well, if you weren't convinced just by reading the protocol and saying, oh yeah, this, this makes sense, this is sure, you could read the proof idea and maybe that would convince you. If you're still not convinced, uh, you can read the actual proof. But you could stop at any of those points and be content. Um, and maybe, maybe it would have been a good idea to say, you know, I'm just going to put the proof idea in the paper and then I shove uh, the actual technical details of the proof into the appendix. Uh, that would have created an appendix, which I already, didn't already have. And that's sort of, you know, it's being hypocritical of me because I'm, I'm a kind of a no appendix advocate. Call yourself that. So yeah, that, that, that'd be one solution. Like, Proof's easier to write. And sometimes these appendices get a bit ridiculous with the backgrounds too. Like it, there, there's there's some there's some merit obviously to adding backgrounds to the appendix. And you know, if it's in the appendix it doesn't hurt as much as having like huge backgrounds of the paper itself. But sometimes these appendices become like textbooks where it's like you're summarizing a bunch of stuff in the field. And I mean, that's, you know, like all these things, I think they're symptomatic of how you know, the field sort of develops as a whole. So like, you don't really get points for writing survey or recap recapitulation papers. So if you want to recapitulate like a field, you sort of have to wait for like a textbook or something at that level. There are a few like survey papers or recapitulation papers. For example, there's a, 
there's a Lendl's paper on uh, simulation proofs called How to Simulate It, which is a good paper you should actually read if you're getting into that. And so that's sort of like a, essentially a recap paper. But often you have like people <laughs> with appendices which like have basically 50% of that paper which is dedicated to explaining simulation-based proofs and so you have this kind of like half-baked version of that shoved into the appendix. And that's just sort of an example. But yeah, the, the appendix growth is sort of a problem sort of to summarize in this ramble and section. I'd say we, we can, we really should blame the problem on, the, on sort of the, the root causes and not just symptoms. So I think we should make proofs more closely match the intuition and really have a better abstraction than just raw UC because it's very difficult to even with some of the simplifications. Of and that would make proofs, you know, prettier to read, easier to write, and people would enjoy reading them. And, you know, they could be considered like actually an integral part of the paper rather than this technical detail we want to brush away. And then, you know, maybe having survey papers or, or recaps or stuff like that could help sort of get people up to speed. And instead of having this huge background section, you could say, oh, you know, we need these tools. Here's some references to those. And that way, you know, pe people can explain something, you know, a few times. I wanted to say once, but really, there shouldn't be one explanation for be a few good explanations. That way people can sort of compare the two. That's always useful. So there's that section on appendices over. Um, let's see. Another thing I, I sort of uh, think tweeted about today is that it would be quite interesting to add an LLVM backend for Boolean circuits. So I think one thing that's going to become very interesting in the future is having programming languages which are aware of well, first of all, there's sort of two needs for which you need new programming languages and cryptography. And those are domain-specific languages for multi-party computation in C and for, for zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, for zero-knowledge proofs, there have been you know, a few attempts. A lot of these uh, are focused at the circuit level. So basically, the, the sort of final input you need to most proving systems is a circuit. So usually an arithmetic circuit with, you know, snarks being the predominant form of ZK proofs to talk about, or it could be a Boolean circuit. With an arithmetic circuit, you work over a field usually, and you have multiplication and addition as your basic building blocks. With a Boolean circuit, you have Boolean gates, so AND and XOR mainly, which I guess are analogs of more. And the thing is that, like, circuits are sort of not sort of a departure from the traditional compilation pipeline. So the usual compilation pipeline for programming languages is that you have a high-level language, you lower it down, get rid of some of the syntax, and simplify it, then you optimize it, and eventually you need to spit out some assembly. And the assembly sort of targets a machine, sort of a CPU that you're targeting, and CPU is sort of like an abstract machine, because you can think of it that way. You know, I can write data to memory, I can XOR registers together. I can do different things with this imperative mini language. Oh, too. Circuits are very, very different from that, and that it's sort of just this this computation graph where I have some inputs, and I connect them with gates, and then I end up with outputs. You can sort of think of it as analogous to like circuits in terms of like an electronic circuit. I don't think that abstraction gets you very far though. But 
the reason why I'd be interested in LLVM Boolean arithmetic circuit thing is that sort of LVM, for those in the know, is it's basically an abstraction for the middle part of a compiler. So you have your high-level language, and the way it works is that you translate this high-level language into an intermediate representation called LVM IR. And this is sort of represents like a basic imperative language with a lot of you know features you know stripped away. So you know you compile it down your expressive features down to simple constructs for an imperative language, but you don't optimize it yourself. LLVM takes care of all the optimizations for you. So for example, it can unroll loops, it can you know find better ways to express from arithmetic. You know maybe it replaces a multiplication by a bit shift uh, with a specific number or something like that. And then it also does with different backends, it, it transforms this optimized representation into assembly for your target. So you might have you know, assembly for Intel's instruction set or assembly for ARM or assembly for RISC, uh, RISC-V even. Um, and what's neat with LLVM is that you can benefit from these optimizations and these backends very quickly as a programming language designer. So Rust is uh, one example of a language which does this. So it leans heavily on LLVM for its sort of backend. You know, Rust has these this you know nice expressive syntax and all these features, but the way compilation works is basically you get rid of all this fluff, compile it down to a simple imperative language, you feed that to LLVM, then it spits out some assembly. And what's interesting is that LLVM was first sort of uh, I think developed by either the Kling team or, or someone closely or some people closely related to them, because Kling still uses LLVM that. And basically when compiling C or C++, first it translates that into the IR, and then it can benefit from all the optimizations there. So the advantage that Rust gets is that it can benefit from all the optimizations that exist for C and C++, which is what allows Rust to be you know, competitive speed-wise. And this brings us to, to sort of circuits. You know, if we design custom languages uh, for MPC or for ZK proofs, you know, it's a bit of a shame if we have our own separate compilation pipeline because we can't benefit from any of the optimizations in LLVM. There's all these, you know, beautiful optimizations we could use, but, you know, right now we're sort of building our separate ecosystem and we can't tap into any of that. So with a, a Boolean circuit backend, it is like instead of compiling, you know, the optimized output to assembly, you compile it into a Boolean circuit. And I think Boolean circuits are more approachable because it's sort of closer to, you know, machine model. For example, like some optimizations might assume that you're sort of working on, you know, registers, which are like 64 bits in size, and you can do bitwise operations uh, and stuff like that. And those actually translate relatively nicely into Boolean circuits because you just operate bit by bit. So all the operations you might want to do on like a CPU translate well into bit by bit gates. So a Boolean circuit backend would be feasible. The way it would work is that you would basically write this new backend for LLVM, where instead of compiling the assembly, as I explained earlier, you'd compile the Boolean circuits. And so then like the vision you could get from this is you have this high-level language for specifying MPC functionalities or you know ZK proof circuits. Or really I should talk shouldn't really talk about circuits at this level. You specify ZK proof programs in a much higher level language than we've worked with today. You'd benefit from all the LLVM optimizations. And you know, new languages would be much quicker to write because you wouldn't have to worry about doing all the optimization yourself. 
and then you'd get these nice, you know, succinct, uh, very optimized circuits for free. Now, one challenge with this is that, uh, you know, Boolean circuit compilation might need to be aware of certain constructs. Like there might be optimized implementations of big chunks of code, for example, like a hash function or stuff like that. And, you know, getting that information from the front end your language all the way through the optimization pipeline down to the boolean circuit is quite difficult. This is something Rust runs into, or some people run into when trying to get Rust uh, to know about constant timeness in cryptography. The one issue is that even if you mark stuff as constant time uh, in, in Rust so that like it doesn't optimize it and doesn't fiddle around with your specially aligned instructions, which try to avoid uh, timing signals and configs, well, you know, LLVM isn't aware of this, so it can mess all your work up. And so you sort of have this as a pervasive problem. So one issue, this this comes up more so, uh, depends on how you, you set it up. But basically, if you have a ZK program, this is more relevant, where basically if you have some inputs which are marked as private and other as public, and you can take advantage of the fact that certain, you know, things are public and would implement certain optimizations, then you sort of lose this information as soon as you hit the LLVM side. Because it's just not aware of, you know, the notion of private or public inputs, you know. And so you might lose out on optimizations you could do on that. One thought I had very briefly, I could cut myself off, was that you might actually need this not just for, you know, performance, but also for correctness. But I think you can sort of avoid this in that you can look at your program as like this big sort of black box with several inputs. And then at the very exterior level, you just mark certain inputs as private and certain inputs as public. And this sort of takes care of the correctness of it in that, well, you know, you know which parts are secret and which parts aren't. And so when you're the prover, you provide both inputs. And when you're the verifier, you provide the, the public input. And then for MPC, rather than just private and public, well, each input is either public or assigned to a specific participant. Uh, so, you know, maybe, you know, one input belongs to person one, another to person two, another to person three, then you have some public input that provides. And then that's for Boolean circuits, which I think would actually be feasible. And I, from a quick Google search the other day, I, I saw some attempts to do this. There was even a paper written about it. Uh, I don't think there's been like a wide uh, community effort to maintain that, but, you know, maybe I'm just... If you, if you, by the way, if you have a correction to anything I'm saying, this ramble, feel free to ping me on Twitter. Very happy to accept corrections. <laughs> and then another issue is that, well, as mentioned before, the main way ZK proofs are talked about and consumed is via snarks. Those really want arithmetic circuits. You can emulate a Boolean circuit and an arithmetic circuit, but you play, pay this huge bull up because like every Boolean operation like becomes as expensive as a field operation. And so a field operation is like usually, depending on how you set it up, but basically if you're field of 64 bits, like I'd, ideally you, you'd be able to, a Boolean operation would only cost a 64th of that, you know, because you have 64 bits. So it's sort of equivalent to 64 bit operations or something like that. So for each bit operation, you have to do, you know, 64-bit operations, that's a huge blow-up. And if your fields are even larger, like, you know, 300 bits, might be the case if you're, like, uh, you want your arithmetic circuit to be the same as, like, the scalar field of a pairing curve, something that people have done, and that you might want for certain purposes. 
Well, then you're paying like 300 bit operations <laughs> for every bit. But that's not great. So ideally, you'd want sort of a compilation pipeline, which is aware of the arithmetic circuitness. It's where this bricks is like, you're some inference you can sort of like maintain because you're one way of looking at like the machine model for common CPUs is that you're working over a ring. So if you're work essentially, if you have like a 64 bit register, you're working when you're doing addition multiplication, you're working modulo two to the 64, which forms a ring. Uh, I'm trying to think it's not, you know, it's, it's not an integral domain. For example, uh, you know, two times two to the sixty-three is zero. Not two to the sixty-four. It's not. Anyway, you have this ring. You can add and multiply, and so some things will hold in the ring. For example, addition is commutative, mod two two to the sixty-four, and this is also the case if you have a field. Addition is also commutative. Multiplication is commutative too. Uh, you can't always like convert. For example, like there's no number where if you multiply it by two, it becomes one mod two to the 64. Whereas in a field that will, you always be able to find an inverse unless the number is, is exactly zero. And the issue is that like LVM and its optimizations, it's very focused on sort of the register model and how, you know, actual CPUs work. And so some of the optimizations just might completely break if you, if you try and do them over a field, like, you know, stuff related to like replacing multiplications with you know, bit shifting and stuff that, that may not work. A lot of it probably will though, because oftentimes you could sort of replace the mod to the 64 with mod whatever your prime is and stuff kind of works out. Another thing you might be able to do is like you, you cheat and you use a binary field that way like all the bitwise stuff kind of works, <laughs> kind of works. Whether the addition would be different because addition in the binary field is XOR. So you might be able to get more mileage out of that. But basically the issue is that like you might not be able to use the entire compilation pipeline of LVM if you wanted to have arithmetic circuits. So ideally you'd have something like LLVM where you have all these sort of common optimizations to arithmetic programs inside of it that people could share with different high level languages. And then it would also, you know, compile the arithmetic circuits in an optimized way. Give you nice, you know, optimized circuits and whatnot. Another thing with, with, with arithmetic circuits in the context of SNARS is that you often need uh, gadgets. I guess that's more of like an R1CS thing, but in general, generalizing a bit, a gadget is sort of like a neat way to encode you know, specific instructions. So there's like gadgets for like elliptic curve operations, gadgets for other stuff. <laughs> it's the one that comes to mind. And so you'd want your compilation pipeline to be aware of those gadgets. So ideally, you, you'd have this shared compiling infrastructure which has gadgets available and which can which people can contribute to and provide optimizations once and have all the languages benefit from and if you if you separate the back end out that'd be interesting too because i mentioned rncs so that's sort of like one essentially way to specify an arithmetic circuit it's it's not a circuit but it's 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 basically sort of an input to a proving system and and you might also have a raw circuit uh you might also have like uh quadratic arithmetic program. And so this could be like different backends for this new, you know, arithmetic LLVM, if we're gonna call it that. Uh, there's probably people that have thought of this before, you yeah. know. And there's also like a, a, an ecosystem of libraries developing uh, for different proof systems. 
which is, you know, definitely a spot where my launch is lacking. Uh, that's sort of a, a weakness of mine that I kind of, I kind of just write software that I find fun to write, and I don't have to. Well, I don't have to integrate, you know, stuff like this for a job or stuff. Because if you're working actual position, you do have to care about not rewriting the real and trying to leverage uh, other people's work as much as possible. As for my hybrid projects, you know, it's just I, I write what's fun and reinventing the wheel is fun. So there's definitely some exploration to do on my side to figure out, you know, what people have been working on in terms of shared infrastructure. You know, maybe maybe I could be an actor <laughs> in this space and propose it. But yeah, those are just I was not expected to talk for like 15 minutes about this LLVM stuff, but it's, I think this is pretty interesting. And I think, you know, overall the field of, of programming languages for MPC and knowledge proofs is very, very early in the sense that we're still like, a lot of programming languages are like the, at the level of abstraction of circuits, which I think is not really a long-term solution. I think it's good enough for now. It's like, yeah, but I think it's more of a stopgap. It's really kind of impressive what people have managed to do with how limited the tooling is, but there's so much, so much more we can do. And a lot of people working on on this problem, like the idea of having high level languages for uh, zk proofs, is not novel. <laughs> I did not invent it, and a lot of teams are working on it, like sort of dog fooding it. Mina comes to mind with the, like uh, snarky stuff. No, it's yeah, snarky GS is their library, and they also have like these snark apps. Whatever they're called, <laughs> I'm not the person to ask. Uh, uh, next, I guess you know while we're on the zk proof stuff, one thing I sort of re-remarked today. Uh, so someone sort of pointed out that. I think it was one of the ZK EVMs, I think it might have been Scroll, where, or, no, 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 I think it was, I think Polygon Hermes is, doing, is the one doing this. Maybe Scroll does it too. But what they do is they have, they first, okay, so to explain the context, what they want to do is they have this sort of, uh, take the EVM, which is Ethereum sort of virtual machine, and they have this sort of bytecode which runs on it. They basically want to prove, you know, execution of the bytecode, so like, you know, when you run this program on this input, you get this output. Or like, I know an input such that running this program on it, you know, returns the output. You can even keep the program secret. I think. Anyhow, you want to prove stuff about the execution of some bytecode. So to do this, well, you need, you know, narcs and starks or whatever. So what they do is they, is they first use a stark. And by stark, I mean, you know, specifically darkware, stark tm, you know, that specific proving system or moniker. So they take, they first create a Stark proof of whatever they want to prove, and then they create a Snark proof with, uh, I think, Groth or something based on that. And this Snark proof verifies that the, well, the program inside of the Snark verifies that the Stark proof is correct. So it does the, you know, the verification procedure as if you're verifying the Stark yourself. And so why would you do this? Well, the, the reason is that creating Stark proofs is faster than creating Groth Stark proofs. The disadvantage is that you, you um, have much, 
well, relatively larger proofs. So your proofs are like on the order of uh, you know 10 kilobytes. That's a third magnitude for a, a Stark proof. Whereas a Stark proof is on the order of one kilobyte, like that. And by doing this Stark to Snark composition, you have faster overall proving time. I think that's what they managed to achieve. And the idea being that you know if your graph you know proving time is very slow relative to the size of the circuit well by first having the succinct compression of the of the program to give you start proof you have much less work to do inside of the snark because all you have to do is verify the proof from the from the layer above it so that's an interesting property to have and so you know the system as a whole ends up being faster because of and gets the benefits of both you know fast proving and succinct proofs Another advantage is that you can you have more flexibility because with graph snarks the disadvantage is that you need a trusted setup per circuit if I remember correctly but with starks you don't or at least the setup is transparent and so what you can do is that you have this setup once and for all which just verifies a stark proof and you can do this setup once, and then you have more flexibility that your Starks can prove, you know, different programs, uh, and then be verified in the same way. Which means you don't have to change the underlying Snark setup, even if the the first level changes. Although I think I, I may be mixing up the details there, because I think the way reading the, the VM docs well, at least the way some of the ZK EVMs work is that they have this fixed circuit where it's like the circuit sort of verifies one step of the, of the virtual machine execution. So it's sort of fixed because you basically take the bytecode as like part of the input data to a fixed program. The program being the one that sort of executes and emulates the CPU. So, you know, I'm not, disclaimer, I'm not like an expert on snarks and starts. It's sort of an area I want to improve on actually. I'm... I'm working on it gradually, let's say. And then uh, maybe another final topic. So something you know I like to point out whenever this, this comes up is that MPC in the head based proofs might be interesting. So in terms of, of proving time, I mentioned that Starks were you know faster than Starks, but even faster than both of those are MPC in the head. MPC in the head, essentially the way it works is that to prove something, you basically just have to execute the program multiple times. That's vastly simplifying, and at some point maybe I should have a podcast or blog series explaining this stuff, because it's very interesting. But what it means is that basically the overhead for proving is basically just a, a constant multiple of how long it takes to run the program. It's very small multiple too, it's like maybe 200 executions of the program. So you can prove like SHA-256 pre-images and like triple milliseconds, which is very neat. And so the disadvantage, of course, because nothing comes for free, is that you don't have succinct proof. So verification takes about as long as proving. Asymptotically, it takes the same amount of time. It's linear in terms of the program size. And so this obviously isn't great for succinctness, but if you have a, to illustrate why this might be interesting, Let's say you have sort of a, a privacy rollup. So basically your rollup wants to you know, create a succinct proof 
everything that's going on, post that to the main layer one. But you also want privacy. So if you're having like a Zcash-like system, you need uh, users to create proofs which say, oh, you know, I'm spending some transaction, but I'm not telling you which one, but you know, it's valid, trust me, and it has been sp spent before. <laughs> and uh, trust me is, here's a proof. And so you're sort of bottlenecked by the fact that you just need to be able to generate these proofs. And ideally you'd want you know, people to have the ability to make transactions on their phone or from their browser, so you're in a relatively constrained computing environment. You know, creating our proofs for large circuits can be very heavy, very expensive. With MPC in the head, well, it would be sort of a constant multiple of how difficult it is to verify. Well, essentially, like, your program is basically sort of saying, oh, I'm checking that my transaction is correct. <laughs> uh, and so your proof in the MPC in the head would just be a constant multiple of that. So maybe it's, you know, two to times more expensive than actually running the program which checks, which, you know, isn't that bad in the grand scheme of things. So anyhow, the user would create this very fast proof that's large, but that's not really a big problem because basically the real up, you know, block producer has a big, fat, you know, expensive machine. He can afford to spend a lot of computation time producing a block and he gets rewarded for that, for that time and expense. And so what he would do is he would aggregate many of these user proofs, and then he would create, you know, succinct proof that all of these things are correct. And so a succinct proof would basically be only a constant factor more expensive than just verifying each of the transactions if they were in the clear. Because verifying an MPC in the head proof is like a constant multiple of just verifying the program, of running the program. And so, you know, in theory, proving would only be like this order of magnitude more expensive. So that might be an acceptable cost there for the producer in exchange for the users having very fast proofs. Because that, that might be an interesting trade-off you want to make. You know, maybe proving and, and block producing gets slower, but if you're producing a block every hour, you have a lot of bandwidth. Whereas users, when they want to make a transaction, they don't want to like you know, spend 30 minutes waiting for their phone to compute this, <laughs> this snark proof. So that would be an interesting mechanism in theory. In practice, I think the MPC in the head composition approach uh, is going to be <laughs> difficult to make work. Well, I mean, first of all, actually, uh, what's interesting with these MPC in the head things like ZQU and, and friends is that they actually work both over Boolean circuits and arithmetic circuits. So if you wanted to do this sort of composition, you'd probably want to end up with a situation where the you use an arithmetic circuit and the arithmetic circuit you use for your MPC in the head proofs is the same one that uh, you use in, in your snark or whatever. That way you have this nice composition. Because one of the main costs uh, of an MPC in the head proof is just running the, the program multiple times. Uh, another cost, which becomes a bit annoying, is that you need essentially a hash function. You use a hash function for multiple things, but the two main things are generating a challenge because uh, MPC in the head uh, uh, well, at least non-interactive MPC in the head protocols, they they basically create a sigma protocol. So that's sort of the three-move protocol where it's like, I send a commitment, you send me a random public challenge, and I send you a response. And the idea is like, you use something called the Fiat-Shamir transform to make this non-interactive, or replace the response, which is public, by hashing the, the first message I send you. And so if you need to verify the proof, you need a hash function. 
And you know, if you're verifying in, in normal programming land, hash functions are very quick. But if you're doing snarks, uh, having a hash function inside the snark is annoying because it's fast. It's a lot of constraints, a lot of stuff in the circuit that you have to include. And so if you compose, you run into this fact that you need the hash function for the Jatramir stuff. Maybe there's a way around that. Uh, you can use friendlier snark caches like Poseidon or Peterson hashes. It's still relatively expensive. I think I read at one point that like the main cost of Zcash transaction proving was uh, like proving that you had a path and a move tree that was valid, which involves computing hashes. Um, and you also need hashes for uh, a random number generator. So you basically like you know, the way it works is that like your your simulated execution of the program involves some randomness because you basically simulate it with multiple people uh, sort of computing it so that well without getting into a full explanation you have you sort of have multiple in each run of the program you have multiple instances of it multiple basically virtual parties running the program and they sort of exchange messages which the randomness. And so to have a succinct proof, instead of you know including the randomness in like your proof, you include a seed, which you then hash to get the randomness. And you know if you do this in Snark once again, you pay the cost of the hash in terms of your constraints, and that's like expensive. So one thing you could do to avoid that, I guess, is that you could you could instead accept a slightly longer proof, which includes the randomness explicitly. And that avoids the need to have an extra hash call. Well, whether in the snark. Uh, but once again, you can't really avoid the hash with the fiat mirror. And this sort of brings me to a point, which is like, one interesting thing with MPC in the head is that it's an extremely flexible paradigm for creating uh, ZK proofs. So there hasn't really been work on making MPC in the head protocols, which are tailored for this kind of recursive composition. And I think you could do a lot of interesting work on trying to optimize specifically for this use case, keeping in mind sort of the general the general use case of I want very fast proofs for the user at the expense of the of the person aggregating them. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to do in making this specific use case much uh, much faster. Uh, yeah. Now, another thing to consider is like you, you sort of have some co-evolution between the MPC and the head protocol and the transaction protocol. So like you try and find ways to configure the, the, the way you prove the validity of a transaction and the way the MPC and the head proofs is set up so that the, the two are fast. So like it's fast to generate your proof for the, the thing you need to prove that the thing it's a bit good way to express that. like for a given setup you have a, a certain program which verifies that the transaction is correct and depending how you set it up it might be more or less expensive to prove with your MPC in the head system and if you have sort of a co-evolution of the two you could set up a transaction system which is easy to prove in your MPC in the head system anyhow in general like this is sort of a general cryptographic comment that up a lot is that systems benefit a lot from co-evolution like often you have something like you know get proofs where a lot of progress was driven by the fact that people needed them for specific use cases zcash 
you know, drove a lot of innovation in Snarks because like they had real problems trying to get them to work and trying to get them to be efficient enough. So they had to do a lot of engineering work and this in turn led to research work because now you sort of have a concrete goal to meet, you have, you know, concrete use cases and you have concrete things to optimize for. And so that gives you sort of new research problems to work on. And, you know, I guess I'll, I'll end on that note. Coevolution is good. Uh, industry and academia make for good partnerships, especially in cryptography. Uh, this was the cold dive with Lucas, a.k.a. Uh, Corona Kirby, a.k.a. me. Hope you enjoyed this episode and see you for the next one. Ciao, ciao.